Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, everyone. Catherine and I have been super busy uh, and our schedules have been just all over the place. She's been traveling around the country doing various speaking engagements. And for me, it's been a real crime con kind of month. So as I go to record this, it's September. Just got back from CrimeCon Glasgow and two days I will be packing up and heading to CrimeCon Orlando. So if you're going to be there, please come and say hi. I'd love to meet you. But part of the brilliance of heading to CrimeCons is we meet so many inspirational, uh, informative, just brilliant people. We've got plenty of collaborations with other podcasters and also experts in pretty much every niche you can think of in the true crime space. So back in June at CrimeCon London, we were actually lucky enough to be beside Dawn from Scottish Murders podcast. And she had so many questions for Catherine, as many people do, that she sat down and recorded an episode. So this week we're sharing a recording, which is part one of the interview with Dawn from Scottish Murders, followed next week by part two. I mean, what's better than one episode with a gorgeous Scottish accent than two? And don't forget to check out Scottish Murders. I will be putting the links in the show notes. I think it's going to be a really interesting couple of episodes because for me, it's great to have somebody else from the outside of the US asking those questions to Catherine and getting a different perspective on it. And of course, Scotland was the location of the Dunblane school shooting, which we've covered earlier in, I think it's season three. Go and check it out. So with that, don't forget, check out all the links as usual in the show notes. So, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Mostly, I'm just excited to be outside the country, <laughs> even if it's even metaphorically. <laughs> so, as my podcast is called Scottish Murders, and it's all about murders that happened in Scotland, some of our listeners might be wondering what a former FBI special agent has to do with Scotland. Well, there is a reason. It may be tenuous, but there is a reason. But I'll get to that later. But Catherine, I wanted to ask you first, obviously I mentioned your podcast in the introduction that you do with Sarah called Stop the Killing. And some of the episodes that you've done include the Sandy Hook Elementary School murder, the Columbine High School, Serial versus Mass Killers, the Dunblane Massacre, of course, which occurred in Scotland, and the Lockdown versus Run, Hide, Fight debate. And Run, Hide, Fight training is something you talk a lot about in your book. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Oh, I'd be happy to because I think that the most important thing for me uh, is that now that it seems like the news has lovely caught on to shootings across the United States. I'm sure it it seems like where you live, uh, every corner in America is a shoot-up gallery. Um, And I'm sure everybody thinks that we are constantly running from bullets that are being thrown at us from everywhere, but we are not. But there is more violence in this type of violence in America. There's a reduction in violence in America. Statistically, the numbers, the types of violent crime, there's a reduction. But this type of crime where people are out shooting seemingly randomly to to innocent people, that violence has increased. And so we had, um, after the terrible shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School, where 
tiny children, 20 tiny children and six women were killed, murdered. The I worked with the FBI and the White House to push out Run, Hide, Fight. And Run, Hide, Fight is a quick memory test for what you do, like stop, drop, and roll in case your sleeve catches fire. And Run, Hide, Fight is designed to click into your brain right away that the first thing you should do is flee the area if you can. Don't freeze. Don't lay on the floor. Don't lay on the floor ever because bullets skid across the floor. They'll hit you from a lot further away. Once they get to the floor, they just keep skidding across the floor until they find something to, to lodge into. And unfortunately, sometimes it's feet. I was, uh, right. I was surprised to read that in your book. And I was, when I was reading it, I thought, oh, that's just sort of the sort of thing I would do, just lunge onto the floor. And when you said, when I read that, I was like, God, I must remember, never do, never do that. <laughs> it's everybody flinches, right? It's okay to flinch, but then get your feet moving. And that's what run, hide, fight is. Get your feet moving if you can. Go around a corner, get behind a wall, get behind a car, you know, and the big car engine, uh, you know, take off down the road. In, there, people always say, well, should we zigzag while we're running? No, just go. No zigzagging needed. And so that's the most important thing. Run if you can. And But I say that, but shootings, uh, these types of shootings that are these mass shootings that you hear about, the active shooters, they really, uh, in the research that I uh, did for the FBI with my team, 70% of them ended in five minutes or less and half ended in two minutes or less. So you really only need to get away in those few minutes. If you're a person who isn't near the shooting, it's safer for you to just hide. Hide someplace where they can't see you. Hide someplace where you can be secure behind a door and behind a cinder block wall. Those are the best. Behind a big tree. You know, something that's hard, that the bullets are hard. It's harder for a bullet to go through. And that's the hide part. And most of the time, in we, when we talk about schools and things like that, most children in schools are taught the hide part. And they, they have been for years about any disaster. You know, if there's a problem, we're going to lock down the school. If we're concerned about something going on outside, we'll lock down. So that's what hide is. And fight is, of course, just what it sounds like. And, and although we never want to teach people to fight, indeed, uh, when it comes to saving your life or the lives of others around you, you may want to fight. And people do. And they do successfully. And I was surprised. I'll just tell you one other thing. That in the research that I did for the FBI, I was surprised to find out that we studied 160 of these types of shootings, and 13% of them were stopped by unarmed civilians, successfully stopped by unarmed civilians, you know, more than anybody who has another weapon or anything. So if you think you can't disrupt uh, a shooting, you can. That's what we tell people in the States. And, and actually, um, in your book, it said that the 1,500 children in the Oxford school shooting, these actually been taught mm -hmm. and hide fight. Yeah. Do you think that helped? Do you because th there was only was there only I mean it's not only I don't mean it's only but there was four deaths. Do you think that helped them being trained? I think it that? does. I think it. I think we have uh, created a culture here um, that people are angry that we have this culture now. But I think it's wise that we've created a culture where our children, and I mean not the not five year olds, but you know. Even elementary school kids, sometimes junior high kids, certainly high school kids, and anybody in a college, university setting, they all understand and appreciate that this could happen and what to do. And because of that, like you said, in Oxford, which is outside of Detroit, Michigan, which is where I was born, the students knew right away when something was going on, what they should do. And, and a lot of them fled. And we, we saw that yesterday. There's a shooting at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill campus. So it's, a, it's a big campus in North Carolina. And it was one of the first, you know, it's the first week of school or so. It was the first day of school for the children in the element public schools there. And there was a shooting on campus. And the entire campus was uh, locked down with a whole hysteria of run, hide, fight, and hundreds of law enforcement who showed up. But the shooter, he was a graduate student. He went in and shot his professor and killed him. And then he fled. So there really wasn't any threat to the rest of the school. But circulating on, on uh, social media yesterday in the afternoon were students jumping out of second-story windows in one of the buildings at the UNC campus. 
So I think students are aware now of what to do, and they are not going to be in the line of fire unless they have to be. God. Sad, but true. And just what you said there about that shooter yesterday, he went after his professor. It was his professor he was looking for. You mentioned in your book, it was quite interesting that while obviously you can't predict or know who's going to become a shooter, who's going to be a shooter, you found from your research that if it was in an office building where there wasn't a lot of public, you know, a lot of public, just the employees, it was either an employee that had been sacked or had you know lost his job or was disgruntled. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was in schools, it was mainly going after, you know, like you say, teachers or some bullies or such like that they perceived had been bullying them. So tell us a bit more about that. That's, you know, that's a way, you know, you can't predict, but that's quite, that was quite interesting. Yeah, I think that's a good, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that that is kind of a fascinating um, aspect of it. I think we struggle with how can we, how can we know if we're going to be in danger? How can we know if somebody else is in danger? But really, we have tremendous tools in our hands if we bother to look down at our hands. We have so many um, pieces of information already available to us. Uh, We know uh, certain things. For instance, as you mentioned, research shows secondary students and people in places of business are likely to shoot uh, people in their places of business or fellow students in their schools. So we know that it's not a question of putting big detectors, metal detectors up to prevent people from coming into the building or to check people before they come in so much as it is how we treat each other and how we make sure that we're aware of the stresses that everybody is under. In those business places, people, most of the people who we found committed one of these kinds of violent acts committed it the day they were fired. And when it comes to schools, it's the same situation. The kids have, uh, students have particular stresses, but the stresses that they undergo are often, when I was saying before about the tools that we have in our hands and we just don't look down, we often ignore, I think, uh, what's right in front of us. And that is someone's behaviors that change. There was a shooting a couple of days ago in Florida where a white supremacist, a white man went in and shot three people at a small store called a Dollar General store here in Florida. And that was after he had been uh, shooed away from a a historically black campus. Uh, HBCUs, we call them here. They're uh, historically black colleges and universities. So we know the population on that campus is primarily African-American or black. And this particular shooter was a white supremacist. And he came to the school he came to the university campus to obviously to maybe shoot somebody there. And uh, some students saw him putting on a bulletproof vest and reported him to the security officer. We see things and it doesn't have to be pulling out a gun. It doesn't have to be putting on a bulletproof vest. It can be other behaviors of concern. That individual had stopped taking his medication because he intended to commit suicide. And he did. And so his family knew he stopped taking his medication. And people get, uh, very often uh, white supremacists get uh, indoctrinated online. They spend more time online than they normally have. So you have to look to the behaviors of somebody to see, what are they doing that's different? What is this person doing that's showing he's escalating his behavior in a way that is indicating that he doesn't care about other people? He doesn't care about himself. Maybe he wants to commit suicide. 30 to 40% of our shooters commit suicide. So the same behaviors we worry about for suicide, we have to worry about for people who might commit mass killings. Yeah, and just going what you said, you know, there isn't an infinite amount of law enforcement agents out there. You know, certainly not a one-to-one the way that they can, you know, be watching each individual member of the public. So something else that I took away from your book was the fact that you kind of are relying more on the public to report things. You know, they'll see, they'll mm-hmm. notice things about their their friends, family, neighbors, colleagues at work, like you said, whereas, you know, that can be reported, but law enforcement can't know about that. So that and we wouldn't even know, right? Law enforcement wouldn't know that somebody's behavior has changed. But you know, when your kid, you know, when your spouse, when your friends start acting hinky, you know, and you're like, what's, mm-hmm. what's up? When your yeah. parent is like, when your mom is kind of like doing something, you're like, what's up? You know, that <laughs> you, you get that feeling, right? 
you know, I have two kids, you know, I was right. I, they're all grown up, but uh, I have two kids when they were growing up. It's, you just like look at them and you know, something's up, what's up. And, you know, law enforcement, they can know that. And our research showed law enforcement may have um, information 25% of the time on one of these shooters, but friends and family and teachers more than 75% of the time. They've seen changes that they can identify, that they've noted, that they've talked to people about. And when it comes to a student, even more, when it comes to a student, the shooters uh, leak, what we call leak, right? They say something to people. It might be obvious things like, don't come to school on Monday. And it might be, I'm so mad, this teacher's going to get, I'm going to get even with this teacher. I'm never going to deal with this school again, and no one is, no one else is ever going to deal with this office again, or that boss has made his last decision about my career. Those kinds of statements, that's called leakage. And that leakage, although it can be written to, um, like you see on social media, that leakage is in school children detected 92% of the time and not reported. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. come back to your book all the time I was fascinated by your book it was really interesting but it was it was eye-opening when you said in there that the amount of times after a shooting you've spoke to neighbours or friends or family and they've said oh I knew knew there was something wrong or there was this and it's just frustrating but people just I guess need to be needs to be more prepared to just report these kind of things and not yeah. tell yourself oh no it'll be that's not what I'm thinking it'll be fine so you know one of the things that I hear people say is they, they all make a ton of excuses, right? And uh, we all do that. We always excuse the misbehavior of those around us. And we, and we hope that people will excuse our misbehaviors. Yeah. <laughs> but but w- one of the uh, things that I hear all the time uh, is, uh, well, he's never done anything like that before. Well, yeah, no kidding. You know, no kidding. Because if he had, he'd be dead or he'd be in jail. Yeah. You know, so the, uh, he's never done anything like that before. He's a good kid. He talks like that all the time. You know, my buddy's just blowing off steam in the bar. No, it's different. It's different. And there's nothing wrong with reporting it. There's nothing wrong with saying it to somebody else, to call their boss, to call their spouse, uh, to call their uh, office, to call the police, call all of them. You know, in the, in the uh, United States, we say, call the FBI, uh, call the FBI, put it on the FBI tip line if you want online but then also call the local police and then call his HR department and anonymously report it. Most states here have anonymous reporting systems. So you would even have to give your name. You just say, hey, look, I don't know if there's anything to this, but this guy, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Well, you know, what you know is that you might be saying this guy, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but the police might already have a bead on this guy for H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-B. Do you know what I'm saying? There might be so many other things. And when I uh, was a young kid, I was a news reporter, and we used to say all the time, we'd go to neighborhoods after a tragedy, and we'd interview the neighbors, and they'd all say, oh, he's a good, he's a nice guy. He kind of kept to himself, though. He's kind of weird, you know. Yeah, I did notice that before he, you know, I did notice that before this happened, he did X. And one mass murderer, uh, you know, we talked to, the whole neighborhood said, oh, yeah, this guy, uh, for like three weeks before he committed this horrific crime, he was out in his backyard every day shooting off multiple rounds, like hundreds of rounds of ammunition out of an automatic uh, rifle. N- never dawned on anybody to call and say, you know, this guy's been doing this for a long time. Uh, it's kind of weird. And sometimes all it takes is for somebody, I mean, these are troubled people with guns in their hand. You know, they're troubled and they need help. And instead of them being a mass murderer, it'd be better if we got them the help before. Yeah. But we got to know, and the public's the only one who can really help us with that. You know, you as a parent or a teacher, you know, as a boss, you know when your employee's being strange. Yeah. It's just a difficult mindset, I think, to get into, isn't it? Uh, to just, it's so easy to brush off and just say, mm-hmm. ah, it's, it's odd, but oh. It's it's just something something to think about, really, isn't it? That you. Oh, I've heard every given, excuse. Yeah, yeah, the last piece of the puzzle. Or that's what, I remember when you, your session at CrimeCon, you could be given that last piece of the puzzle that's needed to stop the killing. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that sounds like a book title. <laughs> yeah, um, doesn't it? Or a podcast. 
<laughs> or a podcast. That's right. That sounds like a book title or a podcast. You know, I, I definitely, um, you can see how I ended up with that as a title um, because it was so frustrating. You know, I'm trying to think about how can we just stop the killing? How can we stop the killing? How can we stop the killing? Oh, we should stop the killing because it is that. And I, you know, I don't, um, I don't offer this as a uh, sporadic idea. I spent 20 years as an FBI agent. And before that, I was a prosecutor, you know, a barrister, right? I was in court trying to piece together cases. And it is every piece you need. It's like a puzzle. And if you don't get that one witness who steps up to say that one thing on the stand, you don't convict somebody and they get off. If you can't, because even if, and you know, even under the law, if you have a confession, that is not enough to convict somebody. You have to have evidence that goes with it. You have to have some pieces that can be put together so that even if somebody confesses and, you know, it, it, you know, even a confession could be given under duress or, you know, uh, what the courts need to be sure. And it, we want the, the, we want to be sure that we're convicting somebody of a crime, uh, faithfully and honestly. And that requires all these little puzzle pieces. And I knew that as a prosecutor and I knew that as an FBI agent. And so now I guess that's my mission is to please tell people because the old, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I don't want to get involved. If you don't want to get involved, report it anonymously. If you don't want to get involved, tell somebody else to tell somebody else. You know, if you don't want to get involved, if you don't want to um, be uh, testifying, it's write, a, write it on a piece of paper and drop it at the police station. Do whatever you like. Uh, but also remember that if you don't get involved, you might see this person commit the worst act you can imagine. Yeah. And it was actually that, that this, this is the link coming in now. It was actually listening to you saying at your session in CrimeCon that you and Sarah did. And it was actually in researching a story at the time for Scottish murders. And it was. Scottish murders. I've heard about that podcast. Go. It's great. <laughs> really fantastic. I love that. I love listening to oh, it. I <laughs> but no, it was because it was. I was doing that and the case I was covering, there was, it was a very old case and a crime had happened and it was all years later came out and it was, what if, what if somebody had said that basically people had, so many people had known what was going on and mm -hmm. nobody said, and years later it was, it might not have happened. And when you were talking in that session saying, just report it, just report it, it's the final piece, it could be the final piece, it just, that's what the connection is with me, that really yeah. resonated with me, you're right. It's get out of that mindset and just report it. It's, it could yeah. it could mean life or death. Yeah, you know, sometimes people are afraid to say something because they say, "I don't want to get somebody in trouble." But you don't get you don't get somebody in trouble if they didn't do it. You can get them in trouble for it. Um, but somebody may be troubled, right? If you report somebody who seems like they're suicidal, if you do something about somebody who might be suicidal. Haven't we been trained as a culture to um, know that we should help somebody who's under stress and might want to commit suicide? If that's that's the same kind of thing, would you be getting somebody in trouble by saying, "I think this guy is like suicidal. He's talking about killing himself," and you were you go to school with that child and in and that child talks to you about that? You'd feel bad about you'd think, "Oh, I'm snitching on my friend Joe," but you're not really snitching on your friend Joe. What? You know, and you realize, oh, I should say something because otherwise Joe won't be my friend anymore. He'll be gone. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You're saving lives. So many of these people do intend to commit suicide. And also they're, they're so in need of help, especially people who are ideologues, meaning like somebody who's a, a white supremacist or, you know, they're falling down some rabbit hole, you know, and they're in like Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole, but it's a bad hole. And you can help them out. Like, why wouldn't you want to help out your friends or your family or your neighbors or people you work with? That's what I see it as. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, StubForge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from StubForge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But StubForge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, StubForge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With StubForge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. At TrimCon, when we were talking about it, in the session that you did, you mentioned something, it was just talking about where we can report anything that we find um, unusual or strange that we want to report to the police. And somebody in the audience said she finds that the police over here, not just over here, but sometimes when she maybe reported something, she's made to feel like oh, she's just a nuisance and they're not interested. And you said, phone the FBI. Did you, do you remember? Is that is that something yeah. we can do? It is really true. Right. Is it? Yeah. Right. I mean, the I... FBI is international. I mean, they're here in the United States, but they but they're they have a website. Right. That you can pick up anywhere, you know, FBI tips.gov or whatever it is. I mean, you look up FBI tips and it comes right up. It's the first thing that shows up. If they get information, they'll share it. Yeah. If you think, I think if you want to unburden yourself and get something off your shoulders and you just feel, like you know, you're do it taken seriously. That was what that was. And right. that really hit home because again, for the episodes I was researching, mm-hmm. and if people aren't taking you seriously, the police are not saying, what do you do? Where'd you go? And you yeah. said that and it was just like, bam. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't hurt. You know, you can call Scotland Yard the same way. They have a tip line. But you know, you don't have to report linearly. That's the other thing is that, you know, just because you told the principal at the school or because you told the boss at work, it doesn't mean you can't tell, you know, maybe the pastor at church or, you know, the parents or the boss or the human resources department where they handle employees. So tell a bunch of people if you need to. Just and then it's not on your shoulders. Yeah, you, that was good when you said that. It was just unburden yourself. Do it. You mm-hmm. ne- might never find out. You might never know what happens, what came of it, but just unburden right. yourself. So that was really and, useful. And you know what? If nothing comes of it, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, exactly. But if just, nothing uh, happens, that's yeah. fantastic. And have you ever received a tip, anonymous or otherwise, that has led to you stopping a shooting skit or helping somebody before they've got to that stage? What's, what is the, and if so, what is the process? I mean, you're saying, you know, we don't want to be telling tales or, you know, getting them into right. trouble. What happens? What's the process after we say, after we yeah. give you the tip? Well, I I mean, obviously I can't talk about particulars, but certainly I have been involved where as an FBI agent, you know, you get a phone call about things and then time is of the essence. I think that's the first thing is if you're talking about historical things, as sometimes occurs on your podcast, you know, even then people may say, oh, I remember that and this was going on at that time and I saw such and such. I never told anybody about it. My attitude as you could tell them now, 10 years from, for something that happened 10 years ago, if you think there's something now, get it out of your head and report it. But if it's something that is happening in front of you, time is of the essence. Situations where, and I think this is probably the most important thing for me, for people to remember is that you're talking about saving lives. Sometimes I talk to people and they'll say, well, I heard this on Friday, but I thought I would see how it went over the weekend. And then I thought I would call on Monday. Well, most school shootings in the United States happen on Monday. So that's because, 
you know, people, I think high school kids and middle school kids, they cook a little bit over the weekend. They're frustrated. They're going to go back to school. Whether those frustrations are from home or their school, that change in environment sometimes prompts that occurring on Monday. If you find out on something on Friday, we want their parents or the police or the school officials to be knocking on the door and lowering the temperature of things on Saturday or Friday night. Because that gives them the time to work through whatever their issues are and find some alternate situations for the student, for instance, or an employee. An employer doesn't get a promotion on Friday. They are very angry. They have all weekend to stew over it. They come to work on Monday. So time is the first thing. If you know something, just report it. Get it off of your shoulders. I have listened to recordings of people leaving tips who say, I want to provide this information, I do not want it on my shoulders. If something horrible happens, I don't want this on my shoulders. And sometimes even that tip prevent, doesn't prevent the action from happening. And I've heard those cases too, and it just crushes me to hear that. But at least that person isn't carrying that burden. So that's one thing is time is of the essence. But then when we get the information, we work very quickly when it's a threat of life, law enforcement, federal, we, in the States, we have I hate to say this. In the States, we have about 800, 750,000 law enforcement officers in about 18,000 different agencies. So we need to really work very coordinated. And we have different ways that we share information. So there's federal law enforcement, and they are not in charge of the state law enforcement. And we have 50 states. And the state law enforcement is not in charge of the county law enforcement, of which there are hundreds and thousands. And then there are local uh, police uh, um, versions and also uh, native. uh, Of course, the states, uh, you know, we were we ran over all the natives who were here, as as, as occurred in every country, apparently. And uh, the natives have their own uh, law enforcement in the areas where they uh, control the property, the land. So we have state. Uh, local and tribal uh, native uh, law enforcement officers, in addition to federal. So when we get information, whether it comes into the local police or county sheriffs or state police or the FBI, that information, if it's urgent, is immediately relayed to the jurisdiction that has those uh, that that property. So if a student lives in Nebraska, but he makes a threat about Iowa, both Iowa and Nebraska law enforcement are notified. And, and they share information. So we have, so that's the first part is that we do that. But then the second part is that it's one thing to share the information, but then the next thing is that everybody checks their system to see if they know anything about that individual or they know anything about threats that have been made before. And that's something that you can't as a civilian do, right? Law enforcement has a lot of information and they, and their job is to protect it in part, right? It's a privacy issue. You don't want to have the worst day of your life, you know, when you are. When you're doing something really stupid, put out there in the newspapers and the bulletin boards, you know, or poke or, or tacked up at the bar. You want law enforcement to keep that information uh, secret, you know, in private because it's your private information. So here we that's private information. We don't share it. But law enforcement checks with each other and they check each other's databases to see whether or not there are pieces of the puzzle that show this person is crumbling apart. And if that person is crumbling apart and is going to commit a crime. We want to know that right away, and we want to try to fend it off. So that's when it comes in. If multiple people are seeing differences or changes in behavior, then if you're all reporting it, then there you're getting your build up there. So you're able to see rather than just exactly. one piece. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think it's, it's hard to um, imagine that happens. But then I think if you work in my environment, like, you know, in the FBI, the complexity of a case that, you know, to put together a federal or international jurisdictional case of drug trafficking or financial crimes. Those are complicated cases with, you know, terabytes of evidence and and witness statements and interviews. And that's, those are big cases, even smaller cases like that Oxford High School shooting. The parents are currently awaiting trial uh, for uh, four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Imagine the evidence collection they had to interview Dozens and dozens of students and faculty members, uh, parents, neighbors, all the law enforcement officers involved collect all that evidence, 
for a shooting that occurred in the school that only took a minute, right? And so the evidence collection is huge. And that's what we spend a lot of time doing is pulling all that evidence together. And we need every piece of it, every piece of it, but we need it like right now. That's how we put a case together. Because first you have to, you have to have reasonable suspicion in order to uh, arrest somebody. Uh, You have to have probable cause to arrest, reasonable suspicion to go in and talk uh, to certain people, probable cause to charge somebody. So these are all kind of legal standards uh, that require you to gather the evidence, articulate it to a judge, put it on a piece of paper and, uh, and have the judge sign off on it and allow you to arrest somebody or search somebody's house, things like that. And it, it's just, it's a big puzzle to put a case together. It's just a big, big puzzle. We need your help. We need your help. <laughs> and speaking again of the Oxford shooting, can you tell me, obviously you said that the parents, the shooter's parents were um, waiting a trial, but also the shooter himself was charged with an act of terrorism. Why was that a stop the press moment? Oh, that was a stop the press that was moment. Great. That was a really good film. Enjoyed reading that. <laughs> I just imagined yes. everything. Catherine being like, "Stop everything! Stop everything! This is really important." <laughs> stop the presses! I mean it. I've only been. Uh, I used to be in the newspaper business uh, as a young journalist, and I always wanted to say, "Stop the presses!" I never got to do it there. You had your moment. <laughs> never got. I had my moment. Indeed. Um, the uh, at Oxford, just for your listeners, uh, Oxford High School, as we mentioned, uh, four students killed. A uh, young man who came to the school with a handgun that had been purchased for him when he was fifteen by his parents as his Christmas present, and so um, very reasonable Christmas gift. And the child, uh, the the fifteen year old, brought the, the the that that purchase occurred on a Friday. On Monday, the child was stopped in school when they saw him searching for ammunition online. The parents were called. The parents didn't uh, respond. Uh, We find out a bunch of facts later. The very next day, which is a Tuesday, the child comes, the student comes to school and he apparently has the gun in his backpack. He draws uh, pictures of people killing each other and blood and things like that. And statements on a piece of paper, clearly leakage. And a teacher sees it, takes a picture of it, goes to the office. They call his parents. The parents come to the school. They talk to the student. They call the student down. They talk to the student who says, who has altered the paper. And the kid says what they all say. Guess what he said? And then the kid says, I didn't mean it. I was just kidding. Right. I was just joking. Right. Exactly. They're all just joking. So the kid says, I'm just joking. He leaves the school two hours later. The son pulls the pulls the gun out of his backpack and shoots four students, shoots and kills four students. So, of course, there are more than four students in the school. So if you harken back to 2001, um, we had a horrific terrorist act in the United States occur. We had four planes hijacked and crashed. Two of them crashed into buildings in New York City. One crashed into the Pentagon, which is where our military forces are here in the Washington region, about, I don't know, 15 miles from my house. And then one in one that was turned around and headed back towards Washington, but the passengers on board uh, rushed the cockpit and purposefully took the plane into the ground in Pennsylvania, west of my house. So those that terrible terrorist act changed everything in the United States with the view that we needed stricter, tighter, better terrorism laws and investigations. So that I mentioned about how we have federal, state, local. Well, what happened is many states were also um, overwhelmed by that terrorist act on 9-11 and on September 11th, 2001. And states, including the state of Michigan, passed a law creating a law, creating a violation for in criminal trial time, criminal time in jail for an act of terrorism. If you can terrorize, terrorism is you know, the layman's definition is is pretty much the regular definition. It's when an individual acts because of their ideology, they choose to terrorize people just, you know, to, to become, just as the word is, you know, to to take their ideology and and threaten death or bodily harm to others, for, for others beyond just the person they're standing in front of. So terrorism and terrorizing a neighborhood 
which is what, you know, little kids do when they have their squirt guns and they're running around the neighborhood squirt gutting everybody. They're terrorizing the neighborhood. It's the same concept, uh, but a little bit more violent. So, so the state of Michigan passes a terrorism law and some other states have too, saying that if somebody terrorizes people, then they're going to face an additional criminal charge. So the shooter in this case in Oxford, Michigan, was charged and in fact pled guilty to terrorism, which is the first time it's ever happened in the United States for a mass shooting where somebody is convicted of terrorizing the people who were not injured or killed by bullets. In all past cases, it was only casualties that were involved and counted as the victims. That's a big statement, a big statement right enough, wasn't it? It's huge. It's just huge because we didn't, we've never had a situation before. And here's where, as a prosecutor, I used to be a prosecutor. Here's where it matters to me as a prosecutor. If you come into my place of business and you say, I own the pub down at the corner, a customer who doesn't like me and he comes back, he's been kicked out a few times and he comes back and he has a weapon and he fires that weapon around and he shoots bottles and he shoots into the ceiling and everybody in there thinks that they're going to have a bullet and and it's going to be them next. But nobody is, there's no casualties. Nobody is injured. No one is killed. Has that person still terrorized uh, the group? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. everybody, right? But you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't, we wouldn't have had in the state of Michigan a kind of charge Especially if a person doesn't point the weapon at anybody. You know, this is the little details, right? If you, if as a prosecutor, I have to show that somebody came intended to, in order to charge attempted murder, I have to show somebody intended to shoot somebody. If that person comes in and they never fire a gun towards a person and instead they shoot everything in the bar that's uh, behind the bar and they shoot the ceiling and they shoot out lights, and they shoot out windows, they have not intended to kill any people. They had the opportunity, and they purposely, obviously, chose not to. There's no attempted murder. What do I charge them with? A gun offense? Crazy, though, isn't it? That's semantics. Yeah. It so scared me. <laughs> I know, but the thing is, that is the law, right? I mean, the law is that the law, I respect the law very much so, and, and we, in um, you know, we won't, we don't want to convict convict people of things because because we think they meant it. <laughs> we want to convict them because they because we can prove they meant it. So the parents are charged too, but the child uh, pled guilty to terrorism, so he's in jail for a very long time and um, for life. He pled guilty and, and agreed to a, a plea of of life. So then the um, parents are awaiting trial, and this is another you know breakneck moment here because. We've never had parents charged in this way um, for their essentially activities and inactivities. And in the parents' defense, of course, will be uh, the kid did it. They didn't know the kid was going to do it. And the prosecutor's case will be based on, let's look at what you saw coming. There's nobody besides you who could have seen this coming. Uh, no one better than you who could have seen it coming in to the degree of violence that was coming. In fact, the student had asked for mental health care from his parents, told his parents he was seeing things and hearing things. Parents bought him the gun anyway, bought him the ammunition anyway. When the parents were called from the school uh, and, the, and the mom, uh, they did not return the call on the Monday. The mom uh, texted the son and said, um, you're not in trouble, but don't get caught next time. Yeah, I read that. That, that, that in itself was like, yeah, that's awful. That's just yeah. no responsibility at all. He's right. Dean, this is your son. Right. And they knew, and he hadn't had a gun before. He had no, you know, training in it, no exposure to it. It isn't this. This was a family who hunted regularly and had been taught the danger and the respect of guns and or rifles or shotguns. And because there are plenty of people in your country, our country, around the world who have licenses or maybe in our country don't have licenses, but they are raised with weapons maybe for hunting in particular and for sport, right? The Olympics, I think, has 15 categories involving firearms. So this was clearly not a house that was like that. He was from a suburban area where they didn't have guns in the house and, and he talked them into letting him get this gun. 
and they just uh, didn't participate in anything to teach him responsibility for it. Yeah, it was that was bad. Reading that in the book as well, and what the parents were like, and there was so like there was so many cues. Even just the pictures he was drawn in school, there was little notes under them all, weren't there? About how it was it was just so contradictory, and it was just sad that nobody nobody was there for him. It was so sad. I think that's the best word for it. Sad. Because even when the parents came to school the day of the shooting and they saw the note and they saw the pictures that were drawn, even though he had adulterated them, they saw the photograph of them. The school people said, your kid needs help. You need to take him. And they said, no, you know, we've got to go to work, basically, is I think what they were saying. And whatever their circumstances were, there was that last chance. Even up to that moment, the school didn't have any information indicating that he owned a gun. But the parents did. Nobody asked to search his backpack. Why would they, why would they think to though, not knowing that he he had any reason to have a gun? They didn't know. They wouldn't know to search his backpack, would they? No, and you don't just. I mean, I shouldn't say you don't just search, but I mean, truthfully, schools search things all the time, right? They search lockers and and people. If there's if there's a concern, a school or a teacher administrator could search, and that would be appropriate. In, in very many circumstances, but they had no reason to know. I don't know if nobody ever asked, you know, there, there was not a law enforcement, like a school resource officer we have here in the States, law enforcement sometimes who are assigned to schools called school resource officers. And, you know, obviously as law enforcement, they're a little more attuned to all of that. I don't think there was a school resource officer called to the scene or called to investigate. Instead, the, the uh, parents, uh, when they did show up briefly, they talked to the school counselor. You know, they, they were concerned, obviously, about this kid's mental health. Sure, they were. But um, I don't know that anybody escalated the situation and they didn't know. Uh, and I think that's one of the lessons that the school learned is that, you know, you may think you have a handle on the picture and it isn't like the counselor, you know, did anything wrong. But maybe the counselor could have gotten other people involved and that would have provided him or her more moral support. Uh, maybe to have the child removed from the school or to ask them, uh, you know, to ask them about weapons. I mean, anytime somebody's in a distressful situation, violence happens because troubled people have access to firearms. That is a universal factor. So if you are around troubled people, you should be asking, does this person have access to a firearm? For hunting or sport or otherwise, does this person have access to a firearm? Crazy that you'd have to think. I mean, coming from the UK, it's just somebody's not, somebody's behaving a bit strangely. It's not something that you, your mind obviously goes to. Oh, have they got firearms? Have they got access to? It must be strange that that's where your <laughs> mind has to go if you're acting a little bit odd. It's like, oh. Well, I think the sad part is that probably, I mean, it's, it's sad that that's where my mind goes, but I think part of it is that, you know, I have, uh, you know, I have, so many years, I've decades in this world of, you know, uh, of, I've been living with this for many, many years. And so when I have to say decades, it's probably not a good thing. But uh, so I always think that way. Maybe a little bit of it is because I'm a mom. Yeah. Maybe. No, I had, you know, I have firearms as a law enforcement officer and, and my kids always had, you know, the potential to access those. And I always had to be careful about that. But I did train my kids in weapons care because I knew there was a risk they could be around a weapon. That's the end of part one of Dawn from Scottish Murders podcast chat with Catherine. Hope you're enjoying it so far. But there's still more to come, including hearing Catherine's answer to Dawn's question. Why a similar ban on handguns that took place in the UK after the Dunblane massacre couldn't work in America? So stay tuned for that. And we wanted to say a massive thank you to Dawn from Scottish Murders Podcast for sharing her audio files with me. So I didn't have to do two weeks of edit. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. 
Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.